So, as you know, we're coming to focus on what is probably considered the most dangerous distraction ever to come into most of our lives. And that is namely just the war between media and the minds of God's people. Media and the minds of the church. That's why I've titled this message just Cyber Sin and the Family, because that's specifically what we're going to focus on. How, you could subtitle it, if you would, How to Overcome Online Temptations, or at least how to be aware of those temptations so you're not aimlessly walking into those situations. I want, you to be, I want this to be used this morning by God, I hope, to help you realize profoundly the dangerous effect that media can have on each of us. I don't have to say this, but media is virtually everywhere, virtually everywhere, from the home to the car, from the workplace to the marketplace. We are inundated the moment that we wake up in the morning to the time we go to bed with this stream of never-ending social messages that have been designed to allure our thoughts and to contour our minds. We now have accessibility to such unprecedented amount of information about topics and people and sports and trends and weather and gossip. It could be likened actually to like a hidden underground river that roars through each of our lives. The internet and the radio and television and smartphones and computers, they're they're like fishing poles, if you will, that go into this social stream and out of the rushing content of flood our normal lives as we're trying to pull out of it individual pieces of information. It's almost like trying to escape the influence of social media is like a fish trying to escape the influence of water. We swim in it. We breathe it. We are surrounded by it on every side. And its currents, if you will, are very hard to overcome, and it is very easy to surrender to. They either suck us in or pull us down, and fight against the flow seems very almost at times useless and futile. Because no matter where you go, there it is. No matter where you go, there media is. Let me give you some numbers just to put this in perspective. And by the way, these numbers change monthly, just so you know. Um, Statistics from Nielsen indicate Americans spend about 906 million hours per month using social media. It's always growing. YouTube serves up more than 6 billion videos a month. Averages out to be about an hour a day for each person on earth. Uh, Facebook reports that worldwide it has 500, well, even more active users that spend a combined 700 billion minutes on the site each month. I just read a statistic recently that said the first thing that 50% of people do in the morning is check their Facebook account before they brush their teeth. <clears throat> That's roughly a lot, of thing, a lot of hours going on. 39% of American adults confess to be Facebook addicts. 57% of women ages 18 to 34 talk to people online more than they do face-to-face. Recent American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers study found that 81% increase in the number of cases using social networking, meaning evidence for divorce, are, in the past five years has increased. So that's 81% increase in the number of cases using social networking evidence for divorce proceedings. A United Kingdom-based divorce service found references to Facebook in 20% of its divorce petitions, according to The Telegraph. One website is completely entirely devoted to the sad stories of marriages and relationships that have been broken up by social media. Uh, There are online dating forums and social networks of married people who are looking for new partners. Again, married people looking for new partners online. 
including dating agencies whose business strategies is to lure married women into infidelity. And while all of this exists and so much more, 43% of the U.S. Internet users check in with social network daily and countless others on an irregular basis. So even though people, as you might assume, understand on one level the danger that we're talking about here of social media, they walk head on into the trap every day by the millions. The effect of American media on your mind, on your personal family, on the congregation here at Grace Church is more powerful than we've ever once believed it to be. Everything from Facebook to YouTube to tweeting to texting to Instagramming all come without warning labels. No one tells you about the incredible danger and the potential to really change your life forever. Therefore, we have to force ourselves to stand at attention. Real quick, what is media? What is media? I want to speak to you about media and your life and your family. So when I say media, what am I speaking of? Media is the effect of radio, television, newspapers, magazines, electronical devices on your soul every single day. It's media is every way that it can be communicated is communication through news, entertainment, education, promotional messages, data, all of that. The word media is a plural form of the word medium, which comes from the Latin word, which means the middle. It is the middleman, if you will, between what it is that you are connecting with that brings you face-to-face with something else. In other words, media is every channel of communication that influences your life and my life other than being just eyeball-to-eyeball with someone else, with another human being who's actually live in the room. On a historical note, just quickly, it's interesting how the Persian Empire played an important role in this field of communication. It was the Persian Empire that devised what might be considered the first postal system. It was done so under the Persian emperor of the Medes in 55 BC. The Old Testament makes mention of this in Esther 8, uh, where he was using the king of, of the Medes, was using his couriers for communication. In fact, media has such an amazing impact on our world that historians, some have, actually divided history in, and civilization into different epics of media. That's how we think of it. In one book called Five Epics of Civilization by William McGarry said that ideographic writing produced the first civilization, alphabetic writing the second, painting the third, electronic recording and broadcasting the fourth, and computer communication the fifth. To say it this way, the writer says, while it could be argued that those epics are just historians' construct, digital and computer communication shows concrete evidence of changing the way people, humans, organize their thoughts. The media affect what people think about themselves and how they perceive people as well. What we think about self-image and what others should look like comes from the media, end quote. Now, what does this have to do with shepherding your family? Well, absolutely everything. Everything in the entire world. Thanks, Mark. Listen, folks can sit on the couches of your home are systematically being seduced away from a walk of holiness and purity every single day by every means imaginable because they have not been aware of the dangers that are sitting right next to them, the danger of the iPad, the danger of the phone. And again, if you own a radio, if you own a television set, if you own a computer or an iPhone, iPad, or anything else, Your family is being drawn away, drawn away by a force that is greater than you probably ever could imagine or want to face. 
And though these mediums are definitely being used for God in good ways, we have to admit that as well. God has used uh, emails and texting and social media in ways that is profound. At the same time, it's been used by Satan in the flesh and evil as well. So this seminar is supposed to be designed and help you through some of these common issues and temptations to make sure that you're just thinking through these things together with me. Temptations concerning the cyber world that surrounds us And if your family hasn't thought of these things, you want to start to think of them. I'm not going to give you a lot of do's and don'ts this morning, just so you know. I don't think that's always helpful because every single situation is different. Every single family dynamic is unique. But I'm just going to give you some um, key thoughts to think about as you navigate these waters. Just so you know from the outset, this message isn't going to give you those techniques that maybe you came here for. But I want to help you know and embrace and be prayerful about the cyber sin that stands before us. This message is about making sure that you're aware of the massive danger, that you're aware. And I think that's probably why you're in the room, is because you are aware of it. That's why you're here, because most of this has been communicated to you in bits, but now I'm going to do it in pieces. So with that being said, let me just start by giving you a fundamental lesson, a reminder. Go to Genesis chapter 4, just to kind of set the stage for ourselves Genesis chapter 4, because in that section, I think you're going to find something that's very helpful for what we're going to learn today. Genesis 4, verses 3 through 7. Genesis 4, verse 3 through 7. And so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord God of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions, And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you but you must master it. Now, this very, very familiar passage. I want you to notice something with me, though. For the purpose of just setting this stage this morning, I want you to see how the Lord describes to Cain what the issue is for him, and I might say really for all of us. Verse 7 says, Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, here's the imagery, okay? Very, very powerful imagery. Sin is portrayed as a hungry animal that is quietly waiting on the other side of a door. And I say quietly because it doesn't seem to be making any noise that would call it into attention. It's it's silent in its danger. And I might say that the fact that it's on the other side of a door, if you will, implies you can't see it either. So it's an unseen and unheard issue nonetheless. And the only way that you know that it's there, if you just look at the text, is because God tells you it's there. God tells you that it exists, and because God tells you that it's waiting for you on the other side, now you understand. And not only is this sin audible and visually hidden from you, it's audibly and visually hidden and waiting on the other side of the door. Let's say the door is temptation, if you will. Follow me here. Even once you open the door, you cannot see the sin because it's crouching. Do you understand? It's low. It's ready to spring. It's bent down out of sight. It's below eye level. The idea here is just as the tempted one walks through the door, 
They walk upright. They're standing tall, and they're looking out at eye level, let's say, naively. And then once you allow temptation into your life, the power of sin is still out of sight. It still is ducking down. It's hidden. And as you might know, this bending down position is for the animal to be able to spring, to be able to not only not be seen, but to maximize its position to spring and to gorge. It crouches to kill. It's in a lock spring ready to launch, and it hides. So the victim is surprised when it strikes because a surprised victim is a vulnerable victim. So this whole imagery, just to put this in your mind, that the Lord is giving Cain and ultimately to us as well, is tied to a warning connected to a beast called sin who hides on the other side of temptation and lastly, who can be mastered. Who can be mastered. But it can only be mastered by, number one, first knowing it exists. Number two, knowing that it hides. And number three, knowing that it kills. It has a desire for you much more than your desire for walking through that door. And knowing, lastly, you can overcome it. And I'll put a very simple idea there before you right now, which is uh, one way you can master this animal is to never open the door. Uh, If you don't open the door, the temptation is much less intense for you. But if you're all uh, here with children or you have children in your mind one day that you're hoping the Lord grants you. If your sons and daughters and your spouse do open the door for the love of the Lord and the protection of your family's mind and your marriage, make sure that you teach them to enter lowly, understanding what's on the other side, being aware of what it is that you see. Whereas Nehemiah 4.17 illustrates with one hand doing the work and the other hand holding a weapon. So in a sense, this entire message this morning is really going to be my attempt to try to help Bring your family low so that you're thinking about what it is that you're attempting, maybe naively, that might be coming your way. And as I add this, none of us in this room are so simple-minded as to think that we ourselves don't need this reminder. I think of Second Peter when he says, always, I want to I stir you up by way of reminder. I want all of you to lower your center of gravity so that when you're coming into these thoughts, you will walk through that door prepared to fight for your mind because it is a fight for your mind. Prepared not to have your legs, your legs cut out from underneath you and accidentally lose the greatest gift that God has ever given to you other than your salvation, which is your family, your family. Now, Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, something that applies to all of us as believers. He says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Per- persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation for both yourself and those who hear. That's 1 Timothy 4.16. Media literally lies in wait like a lion to devour the most precious relationships in your life. And media in every form has the innate ability to threaten and to deteriorate, to deteriorate families in our churches from the inside out. Because of the widespread influence of how we interpret our world, American media especially has been given the ability to shape and contour perceptions like none other. And I think we've seen this mostly really to come to fruition during the political election of last year. Uh, All of the things and the influences of media upon the minds of people as they've been uh, listening and learning and finding out more and more information, the allurement of all of this influences secretly enters our home 
through our toys, and then it influences our minds. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be, of course, doing this. I'm just saying to be cautious and to be thoughtful. And because our technology, by the way, is so impressive. I don't know about you, but these things are amazing. You know, you can sit there. I mean, you've got to go to Generations of Grace streaming, okay? (laughs) Generations of Grace streaming, yes, this is a shameless plug for Ranger Joe. Uh, (laughs) It's a great thing, you can see, but there's other videos other than Ranger Joe. There's a lot of stuff there that's great. So it can be used for good, but technology is so impressive, and the gadgets are just so interesting that we just tend to invite them into our lives to dine with us, never knowing that slowly but surely, many times, they're drawing us into a whole new pattern of life. We are subtly drawn in because we're not, again, aware. We've been transformed to desire 24-hour amusement every single day of the week without interruption. We find ourselves setting aside time at home so we can engage in the newest form of cyber escapism, without ever having to speak to our wives or children. No longer does the husband long to come home to serve. He comes home to surf. No longer does the wife stay at home to read her Bible. She stays at home to read her blog. No longer does the church come together to fellowship. They stay in their bedrooms to Facebook. And it's my contention that these things shouldn't be. These things shouldn't be. Now, I'm just going to look real quick, if you're taking notes, five areas of social media's influence on your life. Again, I'm not going to give you a bunch of do's and don'ts. I'm just going to give you influences that you need to be aware of, five influences that distract our families away from having healthy fellowship with one another, and they're all based on what I'm going to call false views, okay? False views that media promotes, five influences or five false views that you and your wife and your children need to be aware of. These are the falsities of social media. So the first is this. Number one, if you're taking notes, media promotes a false view of intimacy. A false view of intimacy. Easy access to social media creates, in some sense, a a false intimacy with those with whom you're interacting. And I'm not just talking about physical intimacy. I am talking about um, emotional intimacy. I'm talking about that really lies at the bottom of everything, being drawn away from those that you love to a relationship that you know not of. People need to be close. I think that's what's been so great about Grace Church and the fact that we haven't closed during this whole time and we've been together. It's part of just the need for fellowship, and that's been awesome. And people have been, you know, created by God to need to be understood and to be heard and to be desired and wanted, and that's just how we're wired, and that's, that's right. But when that desire for intimacy is challenging to gain through God-ordained means, our spouses, we sometimes, almost inadvertently, can start to try to seek intimacy through other means. And I don't believe this is conscious at, the, at first. I think it becomes something you're aware of, but at first, not so much. I don't think people always realize the powers that are around them. You must be aware that your wife or your husband and your children don't look as hard into their own motives as they should when they go into social media. And that's what texting and Facebook provide to the unsuspected one, again, using that door imagery as they're walking through that temptation's door to be slain as they begin this quest for intimacy. You see, real intimacy in all relationships is hard work, right? 
It's not easy to maintain close intimacy, even with your family. Real intimacy is time-consuming. It's tacky. It's very messy. It's confusing. Sometimes it can be very painful as well. Intimacy, real honest-to-goodness intimacy between human beings requires a give-and-take of something that we call reality. (laughs) Reality. And reality is the opposite of imaginary, which means reality... Is not always what you want it to be. Uh, it is what it is. It is what's true. It's, not, it's what's really happening. It's not what you're pretending is happening. So real intimacy happens when two people are open, honest, patient, forgiving, accepting, and committed to each other no matter what. False intimacy, now this is now going to social media, happens when anyone is lying, anxious, hiding, partially open, selectively honest, and uncommitted. False intimacy happens with people that don't live with you. False intimacy happens with people that want the rush of excitement that's associated with intimacy without the pain of loyalty. And I bring all this up to you because, under the banner of media, because one of the very popular aspects of communication that really kills intimacy and creates a very false sense of normalcy is texting. Okay? Just hear me out on this. Texting. I'm not saying you can't text. I'm just saying, listen to this. Texting is a threat to intimacy in all relationships. Between you, between your friends, and you and your significant other, and or between you and your spouse one day, and, and all others in between. Why? Because according to latest research, we now text one another more often than we speak to one another. Either by phone or face-to-face. You text more than you call. You text more than you say hi. That's before all you add the various forms of instant messaging and Facebook posts and tweets and so on and so forth. So to make matters worse, a considerable portion of the new, of a few remaining conversations that dare do take place in front of other people, uh, they still are texting rather than talking. Have you seen those commercials? I don't know if you ever saw that where people are all sitting around the family and the a table, and they're all on their devices, and they're texting each other. Instead of just saying, can you pass me the fork, they text it. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's like, yeah, that could happen. Another survey found that young women in particular now use texting as their main conversational slang. And if you live with them, you know that. Their vocabulary has been tragically reduced to abbreviations like LOL, which drives me nuts, FYI, uh, BFF, uh, the blasphemous OMG, which, by the way, now is in the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, So if you rarely text, congratulations, you're a very few minority here. You're in a shrinking minority. But most people today, especially children, text like mad. Uh, Why am I beginning with this one? Because according to some studies, people are led into adultery, listen to this, three times faster through social media means like texting than normal. You want to guard your marriage? Guard your texting. Uh, One man from Lehigh University, Bob Rosenwein, has found that people communicating online often fall for each other in about a week. Uh, One of my sons and I were just talking about this. That's two or three times as fast on average than when you're face-to-face. He says, when you don't have have nonverbal communication, like the likelihood of being able to disclose at a deeper level is greater because there's less inhibition. So it's going to feel like a more intimate relationship more quickly. Another study researcher named Fitch found it the following. 
20 years ago, if you really thought a coworker was interesting and later on that evening you thought of them and wanted to say, hey, how are you doing, then you'd have to ask yourself, is it really appropriate to call them at home? What if their spouse answers? What am I thinking? That's how it used to be. But social media and the advance has enabled relationships to begin at first innocently through the back door of texting. Now, this is heavy on my heart because I counseled a couple many years ago who had a wife who was convinced uh, or convinced her husband that she needed to leave to have a spiritual retreat away. And so she did that to get closer to the Lord. And when she did that, she accidentally found herself at the end of that little time away kissing a man whom she met through texting, just happened to be working at the shop that she was visiting. What started as, did you receive the order, evolved into have a great weekend, and then you're too funny, and then where are you now? So texting can create a false sense of intimacy. Stephen Cummins, Ph.D. of Loyola Medical Center in Maywood, Illinois, describes another way of this false sense of intimacy is expressed through social media in regards to extramarital relationships, this time through Facebook. Dr. Kimmons writes, one spouse connects online with someone they knew from high school. By the way, real bad idea. Real bad idea. The person is emotionally available and they start communicating through Facebook. Within a short amount of time, the sharing of personal stories can lead to deepening sense of intimacy which in turn can point the couple in the direction of physical contact, end quote. So a a wavering spouse may not set out to do wrong. A person may simply be curious what an old friend or old flame is doing and decide to say hello online. But Kimmon says if the errant spouse ends up talking to the old friend more often than their own spouse, you don't need a fancy psychological study to conclude that I'm more likely to fall in love with the person I talk to five times a week because I have more contact with that person, he says. So the point being in this, of course, is to be aware of this, that beginning such a relationship may be innocent, but its continuation is not. And I can't tell you how many times tragically this has happened, even today. Another author says, in general, cheating is the way where partners attempt to get needs met outside of marriage. That's not to say the cheater's spouse is necessarily neglectful or blameworthy. Every married individual has flaws. But this kind of behavior is a symptom of the wayward spouse's choice to misbehave rather than address the issues in the marriage or face deep personal issues. Again, you don't have to deal with the person in the room if you can go on Facebook. And then he adds this, even if a cyber relationship doesn't result in physical contact, A dissatisfied partner can undermine the marriage by engaging in an emotional affair, an emotional affair instead of working through the issues of the marriage. Now, I I think you hear me. So this is what I'm saying. Texting, Facebook, tweeting, Instagram, all the other forms of social media are not the reasons for infidelity, right? That's not the reason. Uh, Social media is not the reason for that. It's always your heart that's hungry for something else other than what God has granted you in your marriage, and you decide to sinfully give in to it. James says, we lust and we do not have. Uh, Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. So the issue is the restlessness of the human heart, the sin in the heart. The heart is always the issue. But there's a wide difference between a heart that's hungry for intimacy that learns to prayerfully and thoughtfully strive toward growing closer to God and their spouse by working at gaining that intimacy than a spouse who's naively introduced to a form of social media that when they pursue 
what they don't understand. They're unaware of the horrible consequences for the quick fix that they long for. So listen, if you need to learn to love your spouse by committing yourself towards wanting intimacy with no one else but them, that's just the basic number one thing. And seeing how they respond and waiting, that's the key word here, waiting for their love to be expressed, writing them notes with ink, Um, that's always helpful, buying them flowers, taking out the garbage. These are all ways to express your desire to be closer to them, and none of those things can be done online except the flower part. But everything else, yeah, you can't write online. There's something tragically missing in relationships that try to stay alive by texting. And you know what's missing? What you just heard right there, laughter. You know, I I know this is odd, but sometimes I think it's unbelievably intimate about laughter is that you just can't express that in LOL. It just doesn't make sense. You know what I'm saying? At the end of a sentence, you don't share anything with that. In fact, sometimes... What's missing is the tone of a person's voice, and the music of marriage is the voice. The music of marriage is the voice. According to a study done at UCLA, 80% of what we understand, we understand through nonverbal communication, nonverbal communication. What that means is that what the written word is a very small part of actually how we understand each other. When someone says, I love you, they could mean I miss you. They could mean I'm upset with you. It could mean I'm bored with this conversation. Love you. (laughs) Which is all meant to be understood through tones, right? Tones and expressions that we send. So vocal tones alone can convey happiness and anger and boredom and surprise and irony, sarcasm, et cetera, et cetera. And when you know what they really feel, it's because you understand it through a face-to-face interaction with them, not just through texting. So social media also affects our interactions with robbing us of being in a room with one person, says something, and then another person replies. It's the circle of communication. It's so very important. You listen to them reason. You hear their soul speaking. You accidentally interrupt them, and they overlap you, or they don't stop speaking, and you get frustrated, and you have to apologize, and you have to reassert yourself, all that. That's that's just part of keeping relationships alive. And I know this sounds so simplistic, but all of this happens when you talk. It all happens just when you talk to each other in the same room at the same time. It's really old-fashioned, but it works so well. There's a deep hunger in the human heart for intimacy, and yet there's a tendency to make shortcuts to gain it. Real intimacy, lasting closeness and love and beauty just can't be found on the road of shortcuts. So just as a warning or an observation, if you go online to gain a quick fix of intimacy, either through chatting with someone else Uh, of the opposite sex who isn't your spouse or through pornography or any other kind of sin, you're not only not gaining your objective, but you're damaging your ability to have real intimacy. You are destroying your own house from the inside out. There's a second falseness. A second falseness here that media brings to the table, and it's a false awareness of isolation, a false awareness of isolation. Not only a false sense of intimacy, but a false awareness of isolation. And I say false awareness of isolation because social media has a very strange way of luring people into isolation without them ever noticing that it's happening. They have this false sense of the fact that they are beginning more and more, unbeknownst to themselves, to isolate from one another, which inhibits them from being engaged with some good old-fashioned conversation. And yes, this is a very pro-conversation message here. 
As Pastor John once said from the pulpit, he said, privacy is the number one threat to your Christian faith. Listen to that. Privacy is your number one threat to your Christian faith. So think about that. It starts very, very subtly then. Author Ivan Meisner explains in his article, Business Week, he says, you go to LinkedIn or Facebook and you read a comment that takes you to another link. And now you're on YouTube watching someone's video. Pretty soon, something weird happens in the time-space continuum, and you look up, and you've lost two hours. So from the very, very outset, this kind of online browsing comes with the surreal reality that you've begun to isolate yourself into another world without even realizing it. Then comes the next stage when it's unnoticed passing of time happens, and your together becomes normal. It becomes the norm that you're with the online interest than your family. In fact, more than the norm, being isolated becomes the coveted desire of your heart. You want that more and more. There's a secular book I came across one time. I didn't have the chance to read it, but the title just stuck with me. The title was Alone Together. Alone Together that addresses this phenomena. Alone Together. More and more married couples, whole families actually, are alone together. Uh, there's a commercial, again, that you saw where a family is at dinner and they have their own electrical device or they're at a restaurant and they're communicating with each other through that device and you sit there and you think, I can relate. I understand that. I can see how that would happen. We laugh at it, but at the same time, it's in our own lives. Now, someone could argue, and people do, they used to do that with newspapers. You know, back in the old days, your dad had a newspaper, your mom was on the newspaper, perhaps. But the only difference is that is once you've read the newspaper, it's over. It's done. You've read it. The, website, the web is endless. It's endless. It means distraction is endless. You want to be distracted? Just get a phone. Now, here's the point. We are living in a culture that is isolating us away from each other at the speed of light. That's my point. We stare into screens, not faces. We gaze into pixels, not people. We are becoming lonelier and lonelier than ever before. Researcher Mark Vernon, writing in USA Today, says, While social networking sites and the like have grown exponentially, the element that is crucial and harder to investigate is the quality of the connections they nurture. A connection may only be a click away, but cultivating a good friendship takes more. It seems common sense to conclude that friending online nurtures shallow relationships, end quote. And I think you could have extensions of that into even cyber church world, where you, it seems so wonderful, but it's actually superficial. His advice, and I like this, put down the device and engage the person. If you want a real friendship, put down the device and engage the person. Pastor John, again, says this, it, meaning social media, it often distracts people from existing relationships Instead of pouring themselves into the real-life friendships they currently have, people now spend hours with pseudo-friends online. This is especially seen within the family, where social networking constantly threatens to invade, bringing a barrage of cultural influence into the private world of family life. In the home, focused training and godliness is essential for the development of spiritually healthy relationships and biblical worldviews. But instant distraction is only a text message away, end quote. So just think about this scenario. Consider this scenario. Man comes home. You know, honey, I'm home. Uh, wife shuts out from the other room. I'm on the computer. Husband grabs his iPad. What's for dinner? Uh, 
he's Googling the sports. He up pizza. As she scrolls down Facebook, want some? No, I'm good. He starts to read some political blog, uh, lovingly brings dominoes into the room, sits on the other side, and the journey to nowhere begins. They're alone together. We're alone together. More and more people are feeling isolated by the same tool that purports to bring them closer together. We don't talk about us. We don't plan about us. We don't really acknowledge us anymore because, quite frankly, listen to this, we're not the biggest thing in the room. We're not the biggest thing in the room. The biggest thing in the room now is the entire world. The entire world is here with us. The entire world sits with us for dinner, and we feel obligated to entertain our worldwide guests. There's another false sense of reality. That was a quicker one. Another false sense of reality. Not only does media create a false sense of intimacy as we investigate it in depth, and a false sense of isolation, but you'll like this one. It also fosters a false sense of intelligence. A false sense of intelligence. <laughs> Social media affects our families and marriages in that it actually makes us believe that we're using our God-given time to gain important information that might benefit us and grow us and expand us as a people when really it is doing the opposite. It is slowing down our ability to learn. In other words, while we're reading the Bible together as an activity that we do together, we are growing and we're thinking and we're pondering and we're wrestling with the truth. The same activity of Googling and texting and Facebooking isn't creating more ability to think at all. It's a facade. It's an illustration of illusion. It creates a false sense of intelligence. This applies to all of us. Um, we're merely allowing the coolness of media and the instant gratification and be able to like leave the room instantly in a cyber way without actually leaving the room in a literal way to convince us to waste our lives away in an activity that ultimately over time will stunt your growth. One author says this way. He says, this is, I think, the real danger of social media. It changes the way I process information. Or to be more precise, I no longer process information. I merely consume it. I speed read hundreds of bits of articles a day, absorbing lots of information, but rarely actually thinking about it. The difficult thoughts, the ambivalent thoughts, the repulsive thoughts, the thoughts too complicated to be reduced to a tweet, they are labeled low priority and sent to the back office of my mind, end quote. Jeff Dreyer writing in The Guardian echoes that exact same concern when he says, sometimes I think my ability to concentrate is being nibbed away by the internet. Other times I think it's being gulped down in huge jaws-shaped chunks. In a CNBC article titled, Is Twitter Making You Stupid? I guess it's kind of, you already know what the answer is going to be. Uh, concludes with this sobering assessment. He says, it seems that we're, we've managed, in the words of playwright Richard Foreman, to transform ourselves into pancake people, spread wide and thin as we connect with that vast network of information assessed by the mere touch of a button, end quote. We're being seduced by media that presents itself, as Neil Postman famously once said, we're entertaining ourselves to death. We're entertaining ourselves to death. We've stopped learning. We've stopped being those people who want to grow, and this affects actually how we study our Bibles as well and how we understand each other. 
I bring this category to you because I think that we have to be aware, I want you to be aware of what we're doing when we're misusing our time with one another. This is really not, for me, an issue of dumbing down my marriage, though it would be hard-pressed to believe I wasn't. The real issue is that we're relearning what's important away from one another, away from talking to one another. Again, I'm really into talking. In separate rooms, we're talking to other people, uh, each of us under the illusion that in some way we're benefited or being satisfied. But in reality, we're wasting the most valuable commodity that we have, which is time, time with each other. We're running out of time. Ephesians 5.16, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So I just want you to challenge yourself. This has been challenging for me as well. Challenge yourself. Ask yourself the next time that you and your wife are both on the computer together, Facebook together, and the clock is running around the dial over and over. Ask yourself something. Say, am I avoiding that one person that I promised to love? Is it easier for me to be sitting over here allowing them to be over there because I feel like the big thaw has set in and I don't know what to do. So we'll just kind of agree to disconnect and still be married. My suggestion when it comes to marriage, pull yourself off Facebook and download yourself onto your spouse's face. That would be my recommendation. (laughs) It's a lot more fun and educational. Get off Facebook and onto their face. There's a fourth false sense of reality that media has brought us. And not only does media foster a false sense of intimacy, a false sense of isolation, also a false sense of intelligence, it gives us also, you can see this probably coming, a false sense of image, a false sense of image. There is something about Facebook, YouTube, all the rest, and I don't know all the different things. I'm just talking about the ones that I hear about the most that creates an imaginary image for ourselves and our roles. First, just briefly, let me address this idea of how social media really distorts our sense of ourselves, especially through our pride. Dr. Lauren Laporta, chairman of the Department of Psychiatric at St. Joseph's, believes that the popularity of social networking sites is a direct result of the growing narcissism the growing narcissism in American culture due largely to the self-esteem movement of the 1990s. Writing for Psychiatric Times, she writes this, It is my contention that these sites would not have risen to such prominence but for the fact that a generation of narcissists needed an outlet. The millennial generation needed a way to assess their uniqueness, their specialness, and garner the attention and praise of the masses. Facebook, MySpace, YouTube, Twitter all filled the bill, end quote. So we become a delusional society. I I don't listen to country music um, often, but this one song by Brad Paisley uh, really says it in a perfect way. I'm going to read it. He goes, I work down at the pizza pit, and I drive an old Hyundai. I still live with my mom and dad. I'm five foot three and overweight. I'm a sci-fi fanatic, mild asthmatic. But there's a whole other part of me that you need to see. Go check out MySpace. Because online, I'm out in Hollywood, I'm 6'5", and I look good. I drive a Maserati, and I have a black belt in karate. (laughs) And then he sings, I'm so much cooler online, so much cooler online. (laughs) It's a great song. So pride now has found its playground, right? Facebook, 
social media. I, I, I think I've heard this all the time on radio when I'm listening to talk show hosts, where they're talking about the disappointment people have when they meet each other for the first time. <laughs> because uh, yeah, that's not how your picture looks. That being said, let me address something you're all aware of, but I'm not sure any of you believe it's as significant as it should be. Social media in general and all the others uh, in specific bring us to contact with dangerously false views of success, family, beauty, and love. It's a a famously false view of family, beauty, success, and love. There was a study done by German researchers at the Humboldt University in Berlin. They took a sample of 357 German students of which one in three users cited jealousy as the leading cause of Facebook-induced bad feelings. I don't know if you ever heard of it. They call it Facebook envy. Facebook envy. So the viewing of somebody else's life, their successes, their vacations, and their beauty can be a cause for some people to fall into depression and sin. You see, more and more access into the pictures and details of other people's lives gives us a sinful view of our own lives as we begin to covet what other people have and demand and demean God for not having given it to us. I have to say this, and you know, I'm really not on Facebook every once every once in a while I do I post something just so people know I'm still alive, but I really, you know, not that they care, <laughs> but uh I think it's <laughs> I mean, because it seems to me every time I go on to Facebook, it's like People, friends that I have, some are not Christians, but they are shameless self-promoters. I mean, every single day there's a new picture, and it's in really good quality, so I think it's a photographer. And someone's taking their picture at a different place in a different time, and it's, it's literally like, look what I'm eating today. Wow. You know, you know, I got up. Look at breakfast. I've had so many foodie shots, it's like driving me crazy. And all it makes me do is I, sometimes I copy them and keep them on my phone because it's just beautiful, you know, ham and eggs. But, but, but why do I want to know that? Why do you think I want to know that? Why, why is that an obsession for people? It drives me bonkers. I actually want to write something, but, you know, I'm a pastor and I don't want to make people feel bad. But I almost feel like writing something like, you know, who cares, you know? But I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Here's another one. You know, women see women, and they envision their beauty as something that they want for themselves, and then that opens the door, you know, for sinful comparison, sometimes some very unhealthy physical routines that make beauty on the outside the woman's goal. And this is especially important for our daughters to understand. A couple of years ago, this is, this is really amazing, uh, I was introduced to a thread that really put this in perspective. You know, the Duchess of Cambridge, Kate Middleton, I should say Duchess of Cambridge, uh, Kate Middleton, whose dresses and hairstyle is copied by women all around the world, now has, get this, her nose is becoming the most desirable among ladies opting for plastic surgery. I want her nose. According to the Daily Telegraph, United Kingdom has experienced an unprecedented rush for nose jobs, and most of them want Kate's, with the tripling numbers since 2011. Uh, Psychologist Carmen LeFure, who specializes in the study of facial attributes, told the Daily Mail newspaper that there is a hardwired evolutionary preference for Kate's small, straight nose. Evolutionary? Evolutionary. She said that the symmetry of Kate's nose, the angle between her lip and the tip of her nose, and the minimal amount of nostril 
all are near perfect. People are paying $10,000 for a nose that doesn't bring her face with it, just the nose. <laughs> I, years ago, I personally know of an actress that I worked with for a year uh, who was, by all accounts, a very attractive young woman. I thought she was, but who constantly was elected for, she had uh, surgery, elective surgery, and she would come to class one time she came to class and she looked like a raccoon, like she'd been beat up. And I didn't understand why her eyes were so red because she just didn't think she was beautiful enough. And so she kept trying to look more and more beautiful. And it just, you know, it was very, very sad to me, actually, especially in the field she was going in, that she was paying for all of this to look more beautiful. And the truth is it was making her look worse. I never realized the sadness of that until that moment, that that pretty girl just couldn't be pretty enough. But of course, this is not just an issue for women. Uh, men see beauty that belongs to a woman that's not their wife, and they can become lustful, all because it is put on display 24-7 for them. Now, men, there's never been a time in history before, I've thought about this so many times, where so many images uh, from so many people have been so widely available to view and distract and cause a cause for sin as we have with the influence of modern media. More and more access to, into the pictures and details of other people's lives give us a sinful view of our own lives as we begin to covet what others have. And look, sin is sin. You are accountable for your life before God. Uh, what you look at, without a doubt, is between you and the Lord. But you need to be aware that you and I live in a time where with the push of a button, no one in the history of mankind could have ever seen the numbers of pictures in such a great demand that exceeds even our natural ability to absorb it. I say this because think of this. Solomon searched the world during his lifetime for 700 beautiful wives and took a massive amount of effort and time to find these, political as well, where today a kid can see 700 disturbing pornographic images online in an hour in the privacy of his own home. So brace yourself for this. These stats change all the time, but... The largest consumers of pornography are between 12 and 17 years old, boys. 90% of children ages 9 through 16 have viewed porn at some time. 38% of adults say pornography is morally acceptable. 50% of those who call themselves pastors say that they have viewed pornography sometime this year. Keith Lambert, in a book that I would recommend called Finally Free, He says, men look, I think this is a very interesting uh, perspective, men look at pornography out of the arrogant desire to see women in a way that God does not allow. They show arrogant defiance to God's commands, rejecting the delight of sexual intimacy in marriage and deciding for themselves what they believe is better. They show arrogant disregard for God's call to selfless marital love. They show arrogant disdain for their own children by hiding their sin and inviting the enemy into their home and their marriage. They show arrogant disrespect toward all those who would be scandalized if their sin were known. The root problem with men who look at porn is not neediness, it's arrogance. Arrogance. I don't think everybody's ever put it that way before, but I think that's profound. Remember, sin is lying at the door. It's waiting. You may want to proceed, and you may want to pretend that it's not there. You may want to believe you're strong enough to walk straight and that you're going to be okay, but it is crouching right beside the door, like we said, very low to the ground. You cannot see it as you ought. It's spring-loaded, and it does not want to trip you. It wants to destroy you. 
He wants to take you, but God has thankfully told you in advance to be careful as you enter. There is a fifth false sense of reality that media has brought to us. Not only does media foster a false sense of intimacy, a false sense of isolation, a false sense of intelligence, and a false sense of image, but it also fosters a false sense of importance, of importance. Now, you're thinking, maybe, that I'm speaking of a false sense of my own personal importance, which actually would be also true. But I'm speaking here of social media's ability to make you believe that media is important, a false sense of its importance, to make you believe that the entire world of media's influence is important to your individual world when it's not. It gives you a false sense of its own importance. The access that social media gives you and the entire world gives you, and I sense in some way we're missing out on something, that, that something's really happening where I'm not at. And so I need to be where it is happening. It's really important and it's really relevant. So let me access what's really important from where I am. When the truth is that our exposure to these thousands upon thousands of many little epic stories is ultimately inconsequential to anything of substance in life. I mean, every once in a while, you'll have a story on the news where something comes up and it makes you want to pray for those folks in Florida with the collapsing of that condominium and it just moves your heart. But, but that, and that is important to know about. But so much of what we're finding out about is so minuscule in terms of relationship to God and spiritual growth and life as it should be. Media has become our culture's substitute for meaning. Let me say that again. Media has become our culture's substitute for meaning. We believe that unless we're connected to the hustle and bustle of life, we're afraid that we're disconnected what's truly important in life. Unless we feel that we're in the center of the news, we don't have any life. We must connect to the universe or we must die of underexposure. No longer is communication of information the goal. No, no, no. Media now has taken on its own life. The device of media is now just as important as the information. So we begin to consume it more than the products it tries to sell us. By the way, I think I read 50% of the people who make purchases uh, say that they have gotten the recommendation, recommendation for their purchases from Facebook. 50% of purchases, just in general, were through Facebook. Look, the Bible says we need to stand clear of temptations to busy ourselves with those things that really don't matter. This is something that's very important. I want you to go with me to um, go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, it really underlines this issue. It's, um, it's about shepherding your life uh, through cyber sin. And 1 Timothy 5. And this is something I think many times when people go through uh, the Scripture, they kind of miss this section. It's almost like they, it's kind of tucked in with a bunch of others. Let me explain a little bit before I read it. In the early church, there was a list, as you know, uh, a local body of believers that would develop for elderly women whose husbands had died. And there's a list that was created. And Paul describes the women who should be in that list in verses 9 through 10. However, there were some widows who Paul said should definitely not be on the list. And he addresses them in verses 11 through 16. Now, 
First, think about what I just said. So there are some widows, women who have lost their husbands, that should not be on the list in the church as widows indeed. That seems kind of tough, right? That seems like, why would he be so harsh? Some dear lady's husband dies, and she should be put on the list, right? Why? Well, look at verse, again, 11 through 12. But refuse to put younger widows on the list. For when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. So let me tell you, so technically speaking, these young widows really didn't have a thorough understanding of their own hearts, okay? They think they're ready to commit themselves to the work of the Lord. Uh, They believe that they should deny themselves marriage and wash feet, help others in the church, and so on. But they don't understand about themselves is the power of temptation in their life. So they're still at the stage in their life, again, to give you some background, where they might have feelings for marriage. There's nothing wrong with that. More often than those feelings are going to tempt them, however, to break the pledge that they've given to not marry and to be a widow indeed. And Paul says, don't put them on the list. They're too young. They probably are going to still want to be married. Don't put them on the list and allow them to be tempted beyond what they can bear and then end up breaking their word. So young women who have lost their husbands because of their youth don't understand the issues of their own heart that are going to arise. There will be restlessness within them. There will be a desire that is running inside of them that can't be directed. And so because now their husband is gone and all of their energies that were once directed toward the responsibilities of caring for him and cooking and taking care of the home, now those feelings are uncaged and they need direction. But they don't realize it. They don't realize this is going to happen. So Paul says, Timothy, who's younger and inexperienced, to watch for it. Watch for those women. Now, note with me, please, that part of the pastor's responsibility involves helping sheep of God understand their own hearts. That's the reason we're doing this. Just to understand the temptations that are out there and helping them to understand how susceptible they are to wandering away from what is right at certain times and conditions of their lives. And this relates much more than just understanding their own heart concerning their desire to marry. This is what's important. This concerns their whole life as a person who's been freed from the responsibilities they have in life and now need an open expression of that, expression of that responsibility. I put it this way. In ancient times, the woman's responsibilities were very heavy. I'm not saying they're not now, (laughs) but they're very heavy. Once a man died, and it seems here there weren't any children, then idleness sets in. You understand? Idleness sets in, and there becomes too much time to do anything. Temptation comes. And this is where it gets interesting. Go back to verse 13 now. He says, At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. So instead of learning how to love their husbands because they have died, now they're just learning to be idle. Do you understand? They're just, they have a lot of energy and a lot of attention, and they attempt to fill the vacuum that was created by their husband's death by involving themselves in being busybodies. Busybodies. What is a busybody? One definition I came across was this. Busybody, the kind of person you just want to punch in the mouth for being so annoying. 
They have no life and way too much time in their hands. They frequently use the excessive amount of time to annoy and monitor others, tattletale for small, meaningless issues, but into everybody's business except their own, and spy on people as if they think they are a cop or an important person or something. <laughs> What's a busybody? It's a body that's busy. It's a body that's busy. Someone who is from the Greek verb means to walk around, who is all over the place. Because of this, let me put it this way, a busybody is someone who involves themselves in business and speculations of others' lives because their own life is uninteresting, unfulfilled, and unattractive to them. Let me say that again. A busybody is someone who involves themselves in the business and speculations of others' lives because their own life is uninteresting, unfulfilled, and unattractive to them. One commentator said it this way, since she had nothing of her own to take up her attention, she would be very apt to be overly interested and overly interesting in the affairs of others, end quote. I think this is really important, so just listen to this. If your life isn't full, you're going to try to fill it up with the lives of others, okay? If your life isn't really full, if your life isn't really full with either work or more importantly, with meaning, then you're going to try to fill it with the meaning that you can get more easily. And placing your attention on the details of other people's lives and the interest of others and the latest news and the latest trends and the latest distraction allows you to not place your attention on what you need to be putting your attention on, which is your life. We live our lives, folks, like young widows who have nothing better to do than stick their noses into the affairs of others. And we do it constantly online. We have chosen somewhere along the way to live vicariously through the exploits of others rather than focusing our attention on the needs at home. It's so much easier, isn't it? I, I could give you so many stories. It's not even, it's not even profitable. It, so many men that I know that just need to go home, to stay at home, to not busy themselves with so much distraction and feel sorry for themselves because it's just really tough at home. Well, you're the spiritual leader. Repent and, and do better and, and work hard. Don't avoid the home because things are just hard there. Yes, she doesn't understand you because you're not understandable. Make yourself accessible to her and understand her. Learning, takes, learning to love takes a lot of work, okay? It just does. I wish it was different. It takes struggle. It takes effort. Sometimes... It's just easier to turn on the television or the computer and gaze on without any responsibility whatsoever and just feel like you're doing a good work. It is wasting your life. It is wasting your life away one click at a time, and it's harmful and slothful and dangerous to your faith as well as to your spouse. So the underlying issue here in 1 Timothy 5 is this. Be careful how you spend your time, right? Be careful how you spend your time. Be careful to fill your life with precious things like marriage and children and your home or else you will fall prey to fulfilling your life with secret successes and failures of others. This happened to me the other day. Um, I was preparing for this message. No, I'm kidding. I was on Facebook. And uh, I, was, I was reading about some actor who had, I can't remember exactly what it was, some actor who had, you know, some, something about them that people didn't know. And as I'm reading, I'm going, what am I doing? Why do I care? Why, why do I care how many cars he has or, or how hard it was for him to work through that role? I was, 
it just dawned on me, like, oh my goodness, this is all the same stuff. I, I, I don't care, and yet it's so easily to get caught up in thinking you should. So the underlying issue in 1 Timothy 5 is this, be careful how you spend your time. Long time ago, someone said it to me this way, and I've always liked it. He said, if you're not playing a big enough game, you'll mess up the one you are playing just to give yourself something to do. If, you're, if your life isn't being spent on a large enough uh, theme, like knowing God, like trusting him, like wanting to understand the deeper things of theology. I was just talking to uh, one of the Zakevich brothers, and they went to Hawaii as a family, Mark and Joseph, and uh, I said, so did you do some scuba diving? And he goes, he goes, no, I've done that. He goes, I'd rather read. <laughs> you're in Hawaii, and you're reading? Yeah, because that's where he gets his sense of nearness to God and processing his theological mind. It's just an issue of, like, how do you want to spend your life? It is wasting your life one click at a time. In other words, if you're not treating your life, your life in Christ, your involvement in church, your intimacy in marriage like a big enough extravaganza to hold your attention, then you will involve yourself with the minutiae of media to escape the nine responsibility that you know of that you're wasting your life. You'll drown it out. Chuck Swindoll said it this way, if you do what you ought to do, then you won't have time to do what you ought not to do. (laughs) It's such an easy thing. I should be doing this, but, well, then do that. You won't have the time to do the things you ought not to do. So that is going to be a biblical principle that we're going to operate. The great temptation underlining social media is you're not making enough of your life for Christ. Okay? Sometimes your life just isn't a big enough deal to you. Sometimes your marriage just isn't as important to you as it ought to be. Sometimes instead of turning off the device and engaging the person, we say to ourselves, this is more interesting to me. This is more stimulating to me. Now, you might not literally, of course, be saying those words to yourself, but in essence, that's what you're communicating to each other when you allow social media seduction to take place. Go to 1 Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul says it in a way in chapter 4, verse 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians 4, excuse me. Verse 9 through 12. He says, Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no deed, need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Have you ever thought about that? Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life? And since verse 10 is connected to verse 11, you could say it this way, and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. The two verb forms are tied into excel still more. Excel still more in doing that. Make a major effort to do nothing. Make a major effort to do nothing. Make a major effort just to relax and to relate and remain silent. There's a verse that we're going to use in the song that opens our time is going to talk about being silent before God. The choir is going to open with this. And 
And just that idea of just being silent before God to think about him. Keep your mouth closed and don't say anything and quiet down when you've been speaking. Be peaceable, quiet. Christians are to live quiet, relaxed, restful, peaceful lives in the face of persecution, in the face of anticipation of our Lord's return, and in the face of just about everything. And the reason may be that they need to be quiet down is connected to that next thought and attend to your own business. Take care of your own business. Take care of your own business. Concentrate on your life. Concentrate on your own life. Concentrate on how you live. Stay out of other people's matters. Stay out of matters that don't concern you. Does that ring a bell? Does that sound like social media at all? Uh, You can know about stuff, but don't get consumed with it. Don't spend your time learning how to love one another rather than getting it all worked up about issues that really ultimately don't concern you. The influence of media makes us misunderstand true intimacy. We are fooled into concerning the danger of our isolation. We are tricked into thinking we're becoming more intelligent. We are seduced into believing that what we see is reality, and we're deceived into thinking the overall importance of media. It wasn't that we wanted to become isolated from our spouses. It's not that that's what our desire was. It's not that we were looking for a way to distract ourselves from becoming more intimate with those we love. It just happens. It just happens. I remember one time we were all in the family room in my family, and there was a football game on, and um, I noticed all of my boys had their head down in some device, and uh, I was on the iPad, and Lori, I think, was on the computer, and I just had that thought. I thought, we're not really together. We're just kind of drifting into la-la land, and we're just kind of letting it happen. I want my life back, don't you? (laughs) And I think I want my wife and my children back. I want my board games and charades and storytelling to be back in the family room. I want you to protect your family, too because it happens so easily. It was Augustine who gives us the most practical conclusion and goal in life, especially in respects of chasing this cyber world, when he said this, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose and now glad to reject. You, O God, drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood, you who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts, you who surpass all honor through not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves, O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. That was his conclusion God, you've replaced my desires in life for you and for pleasing you and for growing in you. That's what I need to be spending my time doing. Now, is social media wrong? Is it, is it wrong? No, God's using it in wonderful ways. But these dangers are in your family. And these dangers are already existing or you wouldn't be here. And these dangers are something that we need to address with some biblical courage, okay? Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the ability to go through these things and to be reminded of things that all of us already know, but what your word can drive us to uncover even more clearly, that our families are precious, our relationships are precious, our understanding of you is precious. 
We need to be using our time more effectively. And Lord, please help us to repent of those things that distract us away from the most important matters of this life, our family, our church, your word. Keep us diligent. Help us not to be slothful and help us to long for quiet lives, lives that resist being tempted on every level of interest for the exchange of having a life that is peaceful and, and focused on you. Father, grant each of us this prayer, we pray in Christ's name.